And so let's go ahead and begin with the word of prayer. Jesus, we thank you once again, God, that you've, you will reign forever, God, and you reign forever in our hearts. And we love you so much, Jesus. We love this time we have with you. God, we love to worship you and just sense your presence and just having the Holy Spirit, God, here ministering to our hearts is so soothing, so wonderful, so lifting. And so, God, we ask you, continue to do that as you've done in the worship, Lord, to heal us, to touch us, God, to rescue us, to free us, to bring us to that place where you want us to be, God, and help us to just set our eyes upon you right now, that our whole attention would be placed upon you, and we would be attentive, waiting, God, just yearning to drink, God, from your spirit and hear what you have to say to us. So I ask for your anointing right now by your spirit. I ask for your blessing and your touch, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, uh, you guys probably uh, seen in the news the fires in there's been a lot of forest fires in California, right? And the fires have actually reached this area called the Giant Forest. The Giant Forest. And that's where the sequoias stand. Uh, it's, and, and some of the trees there, these giant sequoias, have fallen victim to the wildfires. But as far as I know today, the world's largest tree, actually measured by volume, has reported to be still standing strong. Park employees, actually, there's a picture of this tree. They've wrapped the base of the tree and several other of the giant sequoias there with foil to try and save the tree if the flames ever get near the area and start sweeping through. Now, this giant tree that's still standing, it's called the General Sherman, the General Sherman. And as I was reading this article, it gave some uh, particulars about this tree. And it stands 275 feet tall, which is just 20, about 20 feet shy of the Statue of Liberty. That, that's how tall it is. Its circumference is 102 feet. Uh, or you can say the diameter of the tree is 36 feet wide which is you know what that is that if next time you see a school bus like a regular size school bus that's how wide the base and the trunk of the tree is now it's been determined in in the study of its rings and everything that it is the age of the tree it is to be over 2000 years old some say 2500 and they they said no no we really looked at it it's it's over 2000 years old and that's amazing. You know what I was thinking about? At the time when Jesus was walking this earth, this this little this tree was this little cakey, you know, back then. So it's been living that long. I can imagine what this tree went through through those two millenniums, right? I mean, think about the weather, yeah. Think about all the changes of season in 2,000 years. And probably even as what we're seeing today, it's probably been threatened with many fires, yeah? a lot of fires. Yet, the tree is still there, and it's still standing strong. Well, just like this tree, 144,000 Jewish missionaries in our study today in the book of Revelation 
these guys make it through all the way to the end of the tribulation. And they are still standing strong. And that's the title of our message this morning. Still standing strong. They're still there when Jesus returns. Now we're going to be studying Revelation chapter 14 from verse 1 through 5 this morning. And so with these 144,000 Jewish missionaries, we see three things. Number one, the unstoppable witness. Number two, the unprecedented praise. And number three, the unwavering testimony. Those are the points really we're going to be seeing throughout our passage. But let's take a look at number one in our outline, the unstoppable witness the unstoppable witness. And here we're just taking a look at verse 1 right here. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Take a look at it. It says here, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And we'll stop right there. Now, as we, we, as we begin here, uh, with what John saw next, it's what God is showing John, right, as he writes this book of Revelation. And so he says, then I look. God gave him another vision of the prophecy that we're reading about here in the book of Revelation. And that, that you always see that uh, there's some vision coming through when John says, then I looked. Now, we've spent, did you know, seven weeks in the last two chapters. And we saw in Revelation 12, we saw how God gave this overview, right, of, of this war with Satan that's been going on throughout the ages. And then we saw what Satan's going to be up to in the last half of the seven years of tribulation. Then we went into Revelation 13. And there in Revelation 13, we saw the Antichrist. And in the last two weeks, we, we talked about the false prophet. And we saw how that they deceived the world into worshiping Antichrist, worshiping Satan. And the world is brought into giving allegiance to Satan, really the Antichrist, uh, all together in that way of worship with the image and everything. So now, as we come into chapter 14, there comes a change. And so John writes, then I looked. And then he says, behold. Now when he says behold, it means like, hey, look. It's like bringing us to attention. I think if John saw this today and he was writing Revelation, he'd probably say, then I looked and whoa, whoa. He would say, whoa, look, look at this, you guys, whoa. On Mount Zion, it says here in verse 1, on Mount Zion, Mount Zion is the plateau where the city of Jerusalem sits. On Mount Zion, what did he see? There stood the Lamb. And who's the Lamb? Jesus Christ, right? And so think about this. What a sight for sore eyes here. What a breath of fresh air. And I, I think God wanted to give the readers and us today, a break from the last two chapters. I know I need it. I, I know there's been just a lot of spiritual battles going on as I talk about the devil, the Antichrist, the prophet, uh, the false prophet. But here as we come to verse 14, it's like, oh, 
Who's there? Behold, he says. He doesn't just say, then I look. He goes, behold, you guys. Whoa, there on Mount Zion. There it is. There's what? Stood the Lamb. There's Jesus Christ. So, so, so just think of this as we come into chapter 14. There stood the Lamb. So from the evil darkness, right, of Satan, the last two chapters come to the glorious light of Jesus. From the viciousness of what's been going on with the Antichrist and the false prophet come the victory of Jesus Christ. So in this new vision, we see Jesus standing on Mount Zion. And understand this, when we see Jesus standing on Mount Zion, it means this. God has transported John from the midpoint of the tribulation, which we've been talking about, all the way to the end of the tribulation when Jesus returns. So that's what we're seeing in this vision. He's been transported. He's in this prophecy. He's there when Jesus has returned already. Isaiah chapter 24, verse 23 at the end speaks of when Jesus returns and it says, The Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and His glory will be before His elders. So you get this picture now. John's transport. Here's Jesus standing on the mount. A vision of Him there. Now, who is there with Jesus at this time and really this is the purpose of this passage is as God brings us into this vision what we see in the second part of verse 1 who's there with Jesus it says and with them 144,000 and who's that do you guys remember the 144,000 well these are those Jewish missionaries we studied about back in Revelation chapter 7 that God sent out into the world to share Jesus with their fellow Jewish brethren and, and the world, and, and they were the, these missionaries sent out. You remember that in Revelation chapter 7. They're Jewish. They're, God lists the tribes, 12,000 uh, from each of the 12 tribes, totaling up to 144,000 missionaries there. And so what we're seeing with Jesus now, at the end here, this prophetic look, when Jesus returns, standing on Mount Zion, they come and meet Jesus right there. And and so we see at the end, these guys, right, they have made it through the tribulation and they're there standing with Jesus when he returns. Now, at the end of the last chapter, we saw this all-out campaign, right, to, to stamp out Christianity by that mandate by, 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 uh, to all the world to worship the Antichrist, right? They put out that mandate. Uh, no one, you know, they had to get that mark and no one could buy or sell without the mark. Uh, everyone had to worship the Antichrist. Uh, if not, they would be killed, right? And all this was going on. And, and remember, the mark was connected to the name of the Antichrist and it was con- connected to allegiance to the Antichrist. And they took the mark on their right hand or their forehead, right? So maybe it was John was wondering, 
okay, some heavy things are coming down the road. Uh, some heavy things are going to happen at the midpoint of the tribulation. Well, what about those guys, the 144,000 that were sent out into the world, that were sent out to witness to the Jews here? What happened to those guys? I mean, this is when Christianity was basically outlawed. Did they get killed too? Well, it's as if God is answering that question and bringing all of us to this point in time at the end of the tribulation to see that they are there, that they're meeting with Jesus at his return, that 144,000 Jewish missionaries have made it through. We see them right here in verse 1. And how did they make it through? Well, God tells us here. He shows us that they're there with Jesus. And we see at the second part at the end of verse 1 that they're the ones who had his name, which is Jesus' name, and his Father's name, the Heavenly Father, written on their foreheads. We saw also back in Revelation chapter 7, the 144,000 were given a mark of God, if you remember, to show that they belonged to God. And that mark protected them from all the calamities of judgment falling upon the earth. And it protected them from the persecution of Satan, from the persecution that we just read about uh, from the Antichrist and the false prophet. And so they come out. They're here at the end of the tribulation with Jesus. And the only mark that is on them is the mark of God, the one who they live for. Make a note here, you guys. Make a note here. There is 144,000 here. How many started out in Revelation 7? 144,000. How many ended up? 144,000. Thousand, not 139,999, right? They all made it. They didn't like, oh, sorry, we, we lost so-and-so back there. You know, no, they all made it. So to see Jesus meeting together with these guys, with the 144,000 at the end of the tribulation, shows the power of God to sustain the mission they were on. They made it through, still standing strong here. You know what, I think of um, what Jesus said to the church of Philadelphia. Matter of fact, turn there, turn to Revelation chapter 3 and take a look at verse 8. Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, this is the part in the letters to the churches. And in verse 8 to the church of Philadelphia, Jesus says here in the middle of his letter, he says in Revelation 3.8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have put I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I can see the same thing happening to these 144,000 that Jesus was commenting to that church in Philadelphia. So you can go back to Revelation 14, and what we see here is that no matter what Satan throws at them, the 144,000 will be unstoppable witnesses in the mission to share Jesus. They made it all the way through. They fulfilled their mission. They, they shared Jesus in a crazy time of 
what was going on in the whole world. You know, when I think about these 144,000 and how unstoppable they were as witnesses and missionaries of God, I I can imagine that these guys were just like what the preacher and evangelist John Wesley, he lived in the 1700s, what he once said. He said this, Give me a hundred men who love nothing but God and hate nothing but sin, and I will shake the whole world for Christ. I love that. I don't don't know about you, but I want to be a guy like that. I want to be one of those guys that can shake the world for Jesus Christ, who can be an unstoppable witness on the mission to share the light of the gospel to others. And of course, it's all by the power of God. No matter what Satan does, right? We can make it through by the power of God. No matter what, we're going to have a resolve in our heart to be unstoppable witnesses. No no matter what the situation is, we're going to keep going. No matter how hard it gets, no matter what happens in this pandemic, no matter what happens with restrictions, we still want to be a light for Jesus Christ to share the good news of salvation in Jesus, that you can be forgiven of your sins, that you can be freed of the bondage of sins, that you can have new life and know you can go to heaven, that no matter what happens in this world, no matter you get the virus and die or not, that you have God truly in your life, that Jesus is in your life. I want to be like these guys who kept going no matter all the things that were going on in the tribulation. These guys, no matter what Satan throws at them, the 144,000 will be unstoppable witness in the mission to share Jesus, no matter the situation or circumstance. Four years after the Titanic sank, a man stood up in a church in Canada Canada, and he was sharing his testimony. and, And he said this, I am a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting alone on a piece of wood that awful night, the currents brought Mr. John Harper also on a piece of wreck near to me. He asked me, Sir, are you saved? No, I said, I am not. He replied, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Then the waves took him away. The man went on, But it's strange to say the currents brought him back and John Harper cried out to me, Are you saved now? No, I said. I cannot honestly say that I am. And again, he replied, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Well, the man goes on and says, Shortly after that, John Harper went down and floating alone there, In the middle of the night, with two miles of ocean beneath me, there I believe. And he closed his testimony with these words, I am John Harper's last convert. Isn't that awesome? So no matter, you know, I want to be like that. I want to be like John Harper. No matter the calamity, no matter the situation, no matter the attacks, no matter what happens, no matter what Satan does to try and stop you, no matter all that, no matter the waves, I want to be faithful to the mission to share Jesus. It's a dying world. 
toward a world that, you know what, is going into the tribulation, you guys. What we've been studying, what we've been looking at, what we've been seeing with the seals, with the trumpets, and what's coming with the bowls, what we've been reading about what Satan does in deceiving the whole world. The world is heading into that. The rapture to me is coming anytime, any moment. We're heading into that. And you know what? We cannot let Satan stop us. He's throwing whatever he can to stop us, you guys. He's throwing at us to things to discourage us, to bring us into depression, to get us to give up and say, Ah, oh, forget it. I don't want to try no more. Have you had those thoughts lately, maybe in your heart? Satan's on the attack because he doesn't want you and I to share Jesus to a world that's heading into what we've been studying about, what is prophesied here. Well, child of God, you need not fear. We have right here a vision of the future. We hold in our hands of what is going to come. And you know what I see? I see in the end here that Jesus is standing on Mount Zion. That in the end, He is victorious. He's going to win. That though we're in battles today, the war has already been won because we see Jesus standing in victory. So let's be like these 144,000 who are still standing strong all the way to the end of the tribulation. Let's be the same when Jesus comes for us, yeah? Amen? Amen. All right, well, we've seen the unstoppable witness of these guys. Now we come to number two, the unprecedented praise. The unprecedented praise. Now, in this section, we'll be covering verse 2 and 3, but first of all, look at verse 2. Verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And we'll stop there. Now, this vision goes on. John writes that he heard a voice. It was loud. It came down from heaven above. And he describes it here like, like it was the... The, the roar of many waters, right? It's, it, it was loud like a waterfall. That's what it's talking about. Or like crashing waves. So it was that, you know, kind of sound there. And then the sound, it was like of loud thunder. The NLT puts it, the rolling of loud thunder. You know, I, you know it's kind of fun, yeah, living up country and up on the mountain when the thunder hits. Oh, you feel so close to it. You have sometimes a house. It's so close. The house shakes, yeah. So could you imagine? This was so loud. It was like thunder. And maybe it just kept rolling, right? And then thirdly, he describes it this way. It's like the sound of many harpists playing their harp. Now, isn't that interesting? For me, I, I, me, you know, I, I keyed on this loud, like roaring water and like thunder. I thought, hey, there it is. There's electric guitars in heaven, right? Strats plugged into these big martial amps, right? That, that's what it is, right? Just kidding. But it was 
loud, right? See, it's biblical to play electric guitar. No, uh, it's a heavenly instrument. Anyway, it was really loud. But but here's here's what commentators and pastors we we, we kind of try and think through is what is this voice? What is this voice? Now, let me tell you, some believe that this is a heavenly scene, that they're not actually on earth at the end of the tribulation, but, but they're in the eternal realm. It's the end of the millennium. Jesus is standing in the new eternal heavenly Jerusalem on the mount there, and the 144,000 come and meet there. So the voice, it, it, it could be, uh, a God, it, it could be a voice of God, it, it could be the heavenly choir there, you know, of angels and all. Now, it could be that we know the Lord's voice in Revelation 1.15, it had a roar of many waters, it was loud. And later on we'll see in Revelation 19.6 that this worshiping multitude in heaven was like mighty peals of thunder. So, I, I think in both cases, it's just saying it was loud. You know, it's like the amp was turned up to 11 and the, you know, and the sound system was turned up super loud. So some feel like really this scene is in the eternal state. But let me tell you, for me, I believe as I taught you just now, this scene is at the end of the tribulation. Because what I see, I heard a voice from heaven. They're not already in heaven. It, it's coming down from heaven. They're still on the earth. And so I think they're not in that eternal state yet. Understand something else. When we read the word voice, we think of voice like, like oh, the pastor's voice. You know, he's, he's, he's talking loud here or your voice or singing voice, right? But understand the Greek word for voice is actually phonis, phonis. And it just basically means give forth a sound, a noise, a tone. But it is translated and can be used for a cry, like a voice crying out, a shout of a voice. It could be used for singing. But it also, and I like this, can be used for an instrument. And so for me, this goes with the harp, right, that we're reading here. John, John's like, no, it, it wasn't this, you know, like like talking or speaking or lyrics from singing. No, it was like this harp sounding. It was these strings coming out. And, and, and the, this voice, this string noise was coming down from heaven. So for me, and of course, as we get into these sections where we don't, fully understand and can't you know you know fully grasp it interpret it because it could be different things one day in heaven one know for me though and you can study this on your own this is the accompaniment how do, i can't say that, accompaniment accompaniment coming down from heaven to a song that the 144,000 is going to sing next and we're going to see that in a moment that's what I see. What John is hearing is, is this, these in, this instrument, this band, so to speak. And they're going to be playing as accompanying the voices, the song of the 144,000. You can study this. You can come to your own conclusion. But let me say at least one thing we can understand. As the harps, usually in the Bible, Whenever you read about harp, it's connected to joy. It's connected to a song of 
joy. And many times it's connected to victory. So if you think about, put that together with, oh, there's a heart. This, this is something joyful. It's not something condemning. It's not something sad. It's like Jesus is standing on a mount. The 144,000 made it through the tribulation. And so here comes this song of joy, this song of victory. You know, when David brought the ark home to Jerusalem, finally, in the right way, in First Chronicles chapter 15, verse 16, the second part, it says that they played loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals, there's the drums, right, to raise sounds of joy. I love it. I think that's what's going on here. I think this is the voice. This is the instruments, the accompaniment that is going to go along with look what we see in verse 3 now. Verse 3 says, And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from earth. So this accompaniment from heaven was playing along with people singing this new song. Now, notice verse 3, it says, and they were singing. Who's they? So you see some people think, oh, it's this heavenly choir. But who is they? Well, well, I believe it is the 144,000. Why? Because it's unfolded here in verse 3. I believe it is the 144,000. Why? Because it says uh, they were singing a new song. And look, before the throne, before the four living creatures, and before the elders. So they were before. Before means in front of the throne. Who's the throne talking about? God, right? Who's the the four uh, living creatures? Remember, that was the cherubim we saw way back in chapter 4, around the throne of God, those angels, powerful angels, right? And then before the elders, who's the elders? I believe it's the, the 24 elders, which represents the church that were around the throne. So they sang this new song, never heard before, now, in the presence of these guys. Before means in the face of, in the presence of. And so this is a special share song for this audience in heaven. That's what it is. The accompaniment came from heaven, but the singing came from earth. So it all comes together. It's like that the, they were the stage on earth, but and, and, and the band was there you know, from above, but around them was the stadium of the um, people in heaven. So this is the 144-7. They is the 144-7. And also, they sang this new song. It says, verse 3, No one could learn that song except who? The 144,000. In other words, this new song was unique for them. This song was, was about them. I think the lyrics was all about their unique experience that they had gone through, that they had lived through in the time of the tribulation. And then the third thing, it says this song was basically how the 144,000 who had been redeemed from earth, they've been, re- they've been the ones saved and redeemed in this time during the tribulation. Think about this. They were saved after the rapture happened. They were called by God 
to preach Jesus in the tribulation, they face the worst persecution ever in all of history during this time. And it was all during, they walked there, they witnessed, shared Jesus. Jesus it was all during the tribulation when God's judgments were falling on the earth. So they were very, very unique in their witness, in, in their life, in their mission. So that's why no one could really learn this song or sing it. This is why it's a new song. This is, this is why it, it was really about them the re, who had been redeemed of the earth. So the they here in verse 3 is the 144,000. So the 144,000 shared a song of deliverance. And this song was dedicated to the Lord, of course, while heaven listened in. And I believe the lyrics talked about how God kept them still standing strong throughout it all. Listen to how John Phillips, he put it this way in his commentary. He said, No other age has produced a company like this, a veritable army of militant believers marching unscathed through every form of danger. It has been theirs to defy the dragon, to bait the beast, and to give the lie to the false prophet. So we see here that in this new song, this special share song, the unprecedented praise of the 144,000 was giving glory to the one who saved them, who called them, kept them safe and secure all the way. That's what this song is about. Come, they've come to the end of the tribulation. They've come to the end where now they're going to move into the millennium. Now they're going to have a life there. They, they fulfill their mission. Jesus has returned. They're standing there. And what do they do? They're giving glory to Jesus. They're, they're, they're singing this new song, this unprecedented praise, never heard before. And they're giving Thanks and glory to the one who saved them, called them, and kept them safe and secure all the way through. That's what's happening here. Turn over to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17. And I, I just want to touch on a few verses here. Uh, verses 15 through 17, basically. Luke 17. As you're turning there, we come into the story, the story of how Jesus had healed 10 guys with leprosy. And you remember back then, leprosy was incurable. You know, it was just one, the, the feared disease, you know, of, of all. It was the worst thing anyone can get. And so Jesus healed 10 guys. And then it says in verse 15, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. Now they're heading toward uh, the priest to show themselves to the priest. Jesus had asked them to do that. And while they headed back in faith, they were healed. They believed in Jesus and they were healed on their way. And so one of the lepers saw that he was healed, turned back to Jesus, praising God with this loud voice. And I like that loud voice part. Then verse 16, when he got to Jesus, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was giving him glory. He was saying, thank you, Jesus, for healing me. He came back to show his appreciation and give him glory as he knew this was God who cured him of this incurable disease. It says in verse 16 that he was a Samaritan. And so Jesus is pointing out that it must be the other guys, the other nine were, were Jews. 
And this was one uh, uh, Samaritan, a mixed race, and they, they hated each other. But this one came back to Jesus, who's, who's a Jew. So he makes note of that. And then verse 17, Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Only one returned to give glory and thanks to Jesus for this healing. How sad is that? And so Jesus is saying, well, well, well where's, where's the other ten? You know, what's, what's going on here? Well, back to Revelation, what we see in this case, that 144,000, not one less, every one of them shared and sang the special song to Jesus and gave glory to him. Not, not, it was 139,999. No, they all were singing here. They all were giving glory to the one who saved them and kept them and, and called them. You know, I believe God is wanting us to do the same, to be appreciative to Jesus, to thank Him, to give glory. I mean, how sad it is when after the crisis is over, after God has helped you and rescued you, that we just go on our way. We just, oh, yeah, thanks. There's no thanks at, at all to the Lord. Yeah? We just go on. How many people have come to church during a crisis? They come every week. They're praying really hard. Then after God answers their prayer, they disappear. Well, that's until the next crisis. But we should not be that way. I read about a boy who was dropped off at home after going to a birthday party and his, his mother received, you know, welcomed him back home and said, did you thank Jamie's mom for the party like I asked you to do? And the boy replied, well, I was going to, but there was a girl in front of me who thanked her and then Jamie's mom just said, oh, don't mention it. So I didn't. <laughs> no, we need to mention it. I really like what these guys did. Yeah. They, when they first saw Jesus, when they came to this meeting with Jesus, they sang this special song to Jesus. Let us not forget that. Let us not forget that when we come here to worship Him, when we come on Sundays, when we come on Wednesdays, that, that, that we're, we're really giving our heart to God and, and we're really praising Him and giving Him glory. I mean, we should thank Him for everything, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? Not just the big things that God rescued us from. Not just the huge healings, but every day He's helped me. Every day He has given me sufficient grace to live for Him. Every day He, he, he forgives me and, and He gives me mercy and He's helping me just, just to get up, just to be able to breathe air and have the opportunity to live for Him. So when we sing, let's... Really thank Him. When you go to prayer, don't forget about thanking God, not just giving Him your laundry list of things you want done, right? your to-do list. But thank Him. Thank Him. Give Him glory. For none of us would be here without Him, without Jesus. So let's not be like that boy, but let's like, be like these guys, the 144,000, that even in worship, 
you know what? They're still standing strong in worship. So we've seen the unstoppable witness. Number two, the unprecedented praise. And now we come to number three, the unwavering testimony. The unwavering testimony. And this is going to cover the rest of our verses, verse 4 and 5. And let's go ahead and read this. Verse 4, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And verse 5, And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So here, the 144,000, uh, as they're before Jesus, as they're, they're standing there at the end of the tribulation, making it through... God gives John just another description about their victory and, and how they made it through. It is these, and these are talking about 144,000, these have been faithful, not only to their mission, but also with their walk with God, also with their lives. And so what we see here is a list of five ways they stood strong for Jesus in their unwavering testimony. And that's the heading in our outline. So number one, they stand in purity. They stand in purity here. Verse 4 said, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, there's two views on this. One is in a physical sense, that they never married, they remained single, and they fully gave themselves to serve God in this mission that was given to them during the tribulation. It could be. I mean, Paul himself is saying, oh, I'm glad I'm single. If you're single, stay single. You know, you can serve better, serve the Lord better. And it could have been all 144,000 that they, in a physical sense, never got married and stayed a virgin. But there's another view, and that is a spiritual sense, is that they have not been tempted away from the mission with the sexual immorality that was raging rampant in the world in the tribulation time. And that they didn't give in to any idolatry, say, of worship of the Antichrist, but stayed true, true to God. So it could be either way. And, 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 and maybe if it's in a spiritual sense, it could be that these guys were married. Yeah. But spiritually, they didn't give themselves to any idol or give in to any temptation or anything. But they stayed true to God. Whatever it means, either way, purity before the Lord was important to them and they stayed in that way and and I think that's really what we're seeing with these guys that in their own lives in the way they carried themselves in their obedience before God and spiritually either way obedient uh, in their obedience that they stayed pure before God so that they could be those affected ministers missionaries of God sharing Jesus Christ. Now, I'm, I, I didn't, I, uh, I'm not going to put this on the screen, but just sit and listen to what the Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, this is what he gave a young, uh, young man starting ministry. He gave him these words. He said, Do not forget the culture of the inner man, I mean of the heart, how diligently the Calvary officer keeps his saber clean and sharp every stain he rubs off with the greatest care remember you are god's sword his instrument 
I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name in great measure according to the purity and perfections of the instrument will be the success. And then Robert Murray McShane said these words, which, which he's really famous for. He said, it is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. I believe that's what these guys were. That's why they're so effective. That's why even at the end, they fulfilled their mission. They are standing strong before Jesus. All right, number one, they stand in purity. Number two, they stand in loyalty. Verse four goes on and says, it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These 144,000, they follow the lamb, Jesus, wherever he goes. In other words, wherever the Lord leads them to go where Jesus wants them to be, or whatever Jesus wants them to do, they follow Jesus' lead on it. And that's how effective, that's how they fulfilled their mission in the tribulation. These guys, they stand in loyalty. You know, I, I think about Ruth. Remember in the book of Ruth, Naomi, the mother-in-law, told her, hey, go back to your country, go back where you, you came from, because things are really bad, and the future looked really bad. But Ruth told Naomi in Ruth 1, verse 16, For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Where your, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth stayed loyal to Naomi, no matter the outlook, no matter what. And so these guys, they stand in loyalty. So they stand in purity, they stand in loyalty. Number three, they stand in sanctity sanctity it goes on in verse 4 it says these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for god and the lamb so at the end of verse 4 it says that these 144,000 they've been redeemed from mankind they've been saved and they've been taken out to be what first fruits for god they, they they've been reserved to be an offering of that those first fruits or set apart. Remember back in the Old Testament, the first part of the harvest, Israel, the Jews, would dedicate it to God. It'd be an offering to God. That was the first fruits. They would set apart the first fruits to belong to God. And that's the idea. These hundred forty four thousand, they were redeemed, they were taken out of the world, you know, brought into Jesus, saved called to be a missionary and set apart so that their lives had a purpose and it was the purpose of God to be sanctified in service to Jesus in service to be a light for Jesus they were the tools of God and that's the sanctity they were set apart in that way second timothy 2:21 says therefore if anyone cleanse himself from what is dishonorable he will be a vessel for honorable use set apart as holy useful to the master of the house ready for every good work set apart sanctified for god's work it makes me ask myself what am i really set apart for yeah what am I most dedicated to? 
Well, these guys, it was to Jesus and the mission. So they stand in purity. They stand in loyalty. They stand in sanctity. And number four, they stand in sincerity. They stand in sincerity. Verse 5, And in their mouth no lie was found. So with every one of the 144,000, no lie was coming from their mouth. Everything they said was true. Everything that they said was sincere, which I think it's here. It's in contrast to what Satan did. It's in contrast to the Antichrist and the false prophet who deceived the whole world. Not these guys. They would not use any deception. They came in in sincerity. And so whatever the 144,000 said, whatever they preached, it was true and genuine. Just as true of what they preached, the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I heard a Christian once make an excuse saying, ah, it's okay, it's just a white lie. It's all right. But understand to God, a lie is a lie. It's a sin. No matter how you paint paint it white it's still black underneath you know we are new creations in Jesus and we should no longer operate in the way we used to operate God has saved us from that God has freed us from that bondage but sometimes we still carry that same habit we need to let it go and live as new creations before God. Paul wrote in Colossians 3.9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices. We can live in sincerity before God now. It's not that, oh, we got to try. No, we're able because Christ died on the cross and rose again from the dead and freed us from that bondage and given us a new life. We're, we're new people who can do that today. So these guys, they stand in purity, stand in loyalty, stand in sanctity, stand in sincerity. And number five, the last thing here, they stand in integrity. Integrity. Last part in verse five says, for they are blameless. They're sincere. They, there's no lie. They say no truth. I mean, they, they, they say only truth and and all. Why? Because they stand in integrity. These guys are blameless. Now, when you read the word blameless in the Bible, it doesn't mean that they're sinless. That's not what it means. It means that they live in such a consistent, godly way that it makes it hard to accuse them of, in, of doing wrong. That's what it means. doesn't mean they're perfect, but they're generally consistent in how they live before God. So the 144,000 kept the, you know what, good testimony before the world. In other words, they basically generally live up to what they preached. And that's the integrity that they lived in. John Dunn, a John Dunn once wrote, Sleep with clean hands, either kept clean all day by integrity, or washed clean at night by repentance. And and I like that because integrity doesn't mean you're perfect, yeah? But integrity means you're you're, you're real, but you're consistent in 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 living for God and being obedient to God and and I like that cuz sometimes we do fail. But even in our failures, 
integrity says we'll be honest about our sin and repent to God and find forgiveness and grace from God to be able to go on. I like that, what he said. So, you can see, these are the characteristics of the 144,000. This is their unwavering testimony, our heading here. I'm going to close with this. I read about a Christian mother who um, stood up to communist authorities and was able to free her two twin boys. And what happened was one day in China, officials had uh, raided a, 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 a Sunday school, a keiki church going on. Uh, I, I believe it was a secret meeting, of course, in communist China, right? And so the kids themselves were taken into custody. Uh, they also confiscated incriminating effort, evidence, maybe, you know, like papers and stuff they were looking at or coloring. And, and they put the children in a van, and as they headed to the police station, all the children started singing. When they arrived at the station, the kids marched bravely into the interrogation, interrogation room, still singing. They were singing words, In the name of Jesus, we have victory. The police threatened the children, telling them that they are to write, I do not believe in Jesus 100 times. Well, instead of cowering under the threats, the children wrote, I believe in Jesus today. I will believe in Jesus tomorrow. I believe in Jesus forever. Well, these officials, they weren't prepared for such a strong stand from children even, right? And so they decided, well, we're going to call your parents into the police station. So, you know, that they got that on them. And so when the parents came, they were told the children would be released to the parents only if the parents declared that they were not Christians. They had to, they had to say that to the police. Well, many of the parents were not believers. And so they acknowledged they did not believe in Jesus and they took their children home. But when one widowed woman, this mother, came to pick up her twin sons, she refused to deny Jesus. The officials told her again that if she did not deny Jesus, they would not release her two sons. She responded to the police, telling them this, Well, I guess you will just have to keep them because without Jesus, there would be no way for me to take care of them. Well, the authorities did not expect such a strong stand and resistance. And so being frustrated about the whole thing, they told the woman, take your boys home, get out of here. <laughs> and that's how she got her boys back home. I love that. You know, when we stand strong for Jesus, God does miracles. We've seen that. We see this here with 144,000. And he's still doing miracles, you guys. He's still empowering believers to do his will. He's still empowering believers to hold to their testimony. And we'll be just like these guys, who in the future, they're going to be found to be still standing strong. Let's pray. God, I'm inspired by what we see in this prophecy today, in this vision of John, and to see you come to the earth in all victory. 
to see the 144,000 still standing strong. Oh, Lord, my God, I want to be that way. When the rapture comes, when you come to take us home to heaven, may I still be standing strong. And God, we don't want to forget that you have done so much that we want to thank you. We want to worship you, God. And Lord, no matter what the world or Satan may throw at us, no matter what may come against us, Jesus, we we want to keep going. We want to be faithful to you in our mission. We want to be faithful to you in our testimony, God, to this world that maybe one person may come to have eternal life. That you may use us, Lord, as tools and instruments, God, to help people, Lord, come to know you, especially as time is so short. God, there's, there's no other way to live. There's no other way. There's nothing else that we can do today, God. Though the enemy may come and tempt us, though the enemy may come like hounds licking at our heels, wanting to grab us and bring us down, Jesus, we know you are here. And the only way is you, Jesus. Father, I, I, I thank you for sending your son and I thank you Father for being so gracious and merciful to me and allowing me to continue God to be used by you Lord thank you that we, you don't require perfection God Lord if that was true then none of us would be able to be instruments of, of yours God but Lord we want to do all we can God to serve you Lord, in the remainder of this time that we have, in the mission that you've given each one of us, Lord, God, we want to be faithful to follow you, whatever you would like us to do. So, Lord, give us strength today. Give us a vision of you. Help us, God, to cling to you and nothing else. And we know that in the end, we will still be standing strong. In Jesus' name, amen.